creature of the night. Who are you who interrupts my nightly feeding? I am Peter Vincent, Vampire Killer! Welcome to Bright Night, for real. This is Now Playing's Fright Night Retrospective Series. Let's talk about blood, Mr. Benson. Hosted by Brock. You know, he is insane. I do hope he's not trying to be old. Arnie. There are no such things as vampires, fruitcake! And Stuart. Kill me before I turn into a vampire and give you a hickey! What are we going to do? What are you going to do? Not me. You know how to use your lips, Charlie. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment in this series, culminating in a week of release review of the remake of Fright Night. I've seen all of your films, and I've found them very amusing. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I warned you. I warned you. Charlie, I'm ready. Welcome to Fright Night, starring Anton Yelchin, Colin Farrell, David Tennant, Tony Collette, Christopher Mintz Plotz, and Imogen Poots, directed by Craig Gillespie. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A.? This is Arnie, and there will be no fighting. There will be only podcasting. So this is the remake of a movie you guys love and people have a cult favorite for, but for me, it comes out of the blue, which the whole series came out of the blue. Well, I'm actually of the mind that this is the kind of reboot you ought to consider doing more often. You don't remake Psycho. You don't do the sequel to Casablanca. You don't go to the obvious, iconic movies. You go to movies that are beloved and small, but actually aren't remembered because that way, 26 years later, a whole new audience has no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I think that's the thinking here, is that they knew they had a great little original here that you wouldn't be able to convince a new audience that doesn't like 80s movies to go watch. So that is why they're doing it. It is because it is obscure, but good, that it is the target. And it is because we're also in the midst of a whole vampire renaissance, and nothing is untouchable when it comes to to that you know probably eyeing a count chocula movie at this point right <laughs> i don't deny that and there have been some movies that i watch and i'm like oh that's a remake so certainly if somebody loves something that's a great thing to revisit and to be original with because you can take the best parts and yet nobody's going to hold it up like say we did Friday the 13th or A Nightmare on Elm Street and compare it to everything that's come before. Right. I mean, as much as I like the original Fright Night and it was an important movie for my childhood, I don't think it's so perfect that they can't touch it. You know what I mean? It's not unassailable. There's a lot of new things they could do with it. I don't know why they need to build off of it, but if they're going to, it's intriguing to me. I said originally, I've been wanting a sequel to this that the actual sequel didn't give me, so maybe this is it. I was happy with the idea that they would return to this when I heard about the people involved. It really came down to the fact that this is a good cast, and this seems to be like it's in good hands. So my faith in it was a little higher than it would be if, say, they were making a sequel to Poltergeist. 
that cast you just talked about, Stuart, is exactly why my wife said, I want to see this movie. Mm-hmm. She had no interest at all in watching the first two. And when she saw the cast, she said, I have to see this. So when we went to the theater together, my wife and I were one of eight people in our theater, by the way, when we saw the movie. Which is two less than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I went with my wife and our friend to a private screening of Fright Night 3D on Thursday night. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I didn't know it was a private screening, but I thought we were just buying tickets. But we got there, and I felt like Siskel and Ebert at the movies in that whole big theater where the three of us going to sit. <laughs> that happens to me when I go see little arty, obscure things. That never happens to me on opening night of a major motion picture horror film. You know, this is getting a wide release, but you would think that no one knew about it. I actually, as we're going to talk about the show, saw it a second time. I didn't go with my wife and friend. I went alone, and there was one other person. I chose to see the movie in real D, and I think that the inflated ticket prices, if you're ambivalent about a movie, if you heard about something and it looks kind of good or you're not sure, you're less likely to drop $18 on it than you would 10 And that's for L.A. prices, it was 18 bucks to see this movie. My surcharge for 3D was 4 bucks, yeah. and that was half the ticket price. That's pretty standard. I have to say, I've never heard a film come out yet where people bitched so much about the 3D prices. Brock was sending me text messages. <laughs> people on Facebook are like, yeah, I've seen that in 2D. And this was filmed in 3D. You know, if you're going to go see Captain America, which was filmed in 2D, in 2D, it makes sense. If you're going to see Thor filmed in 2D, Green Lantern, all of these make sense in 2D. But if you're going to ever see a 3D movie, it should be one filmed in 3D. But yet this is the one everybody's like, yeah, but I'm not paying that extra four bucks. I don't get that mindset. If I'm going to go to the theater and pay those crazy Easy-ass ticket prices anyway. Ah, shit, what's another four bucks? Uh, what we're seeing here is the fallout of Avatar and people two years later feeling like, you know what, it's not worth it in most cases. Yeah, in the rare occasion, it really can enhance an experience, like the camera movie. But for the most part, if I reflect on Green Lantern, it makes me angry. That I gave more money for that production and the 3D was so subpar. And I don't think that people think of this movie being big enough to actually having been filmed with the 3D cameras. When Arnie, you said we needed to see it in 3D, I'm like, why? It was a surprise to me to find out that they had enough faith in this to invest it with the 3D technology. Horror movies just come in 3D now. I really feel like it's the rare horror sequel or reboot that doesn't get the 3D treatment. It's the thing that makes it special because those movies are so formulaic usually what else do you got that's new well Mm -hmm. 3d has been it for the past two years but i think we got fatigue i think that may be another reason why for such low attendance people were not rushing to see it at midnight and if they did they weren't rushing to pay 3d prices yeah cameron better get avatar 2 going fast because i think this is past the turning point and i actually got to see a preview of this in 3d when i was at comic-con we talked about this a little bit last show how i was at the san diego comic-con screening with most Most of the cast there, McLovin and Colin Farrell and Chris Sarandon. (laughs) (laughs) And they did show some of the scenes that we're going to talk about in 3D. And one of the people there was, of course, director Craig Gillespie, who, of course, you know, I know from Mr. Woodcock. Who doesn't? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, I watched half of Lars and the Real Girl. I turned it off. It was bad. (laughs) 
Oh, I disagree completely. It's one of my favorite films of that year. It was fantastically great movie. It was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay, and rightfully so. I thought it was really, really great movie. He also has worked on the TV show United States of Terror. He's essentially known as a comedy guy, a quirky comedy guy. I agree. I've only seen Lars. I'll split the difference. I'm a huge Ryan Gosling fan, so I thought he was great in the movie. I'll see him in anything. I don't know if I thought the whole movie worked, but I really liked him in that movie. I liked the whole idea of the movie, but in watching it, it didn't work. Mr. Woodcock, hey, Billy Bob Thornton and Stifler together in a film, I'm there. Plus, it's called Woodcock, but it was bad, too. So I didn't have a very good feeling about him as a director going in. And it was made worse, as I've alluded to in the past, by the fact that this was written by Marty Noxon. Now, recently, I had a friend come over and say he'd really want to see this movie called I Am Number Four. And it was written by Marty Noxon. And when I saw that in the opening credits, I was like, oh... She wrote this. Now, she is, most people know her from her work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Her first job in Hollywood was writing for Buffy, and she evolved from a first-time screenwriter all the way up to executive producer and showrunner, and she ran that show right into the ground. Well, in her defense, though, that show was on its way out anyway. I did recognize her name, of course, from the same thing, and she did a little bit work with the Grey's Anatomy private practice people, too, so that's the kind of thing she does. When I see her name, Arnie, though, I don't instantly get the same reaction you do. When I see Marty Knox and I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and because I think so highly of that show, unless I think about the seventh season. But the seventh season was hers. Saying that you like Buffy and you're not counting season seven is like me saying I'm a big Van Halen fan, but I'm not counting Gary Sharon. You know? I'm agreeing with you that the later Buffy seasons, they got worse and worse as they went on. The show did pass its prime. But I like Buffy so much that I know she contributed some things to the stuff that was good. I'd be willing to bet, Arnie, that she wrote a few episodes that you actually enjoyed. Her name was on a few episodes that I actually enjoyed, that is correct, but as we've talked about on the show many times, a lot of writing is by committee, especially in television. (laughs) I blame her for everything bad, and I give her no credit for anything good. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I understand that mentality. I can be that way about certain people. There's certain directors or writers. If I see their name, I'm just like, oh! Uh, Marty Noxon is not one of them. I've never seen any of her work. I've never seen this. I am number two. I've never seen Buffy. <laughs> it was number seen, two. <laughs> I have never seen even Mad Men, which I guess she writes for now. I don't know her work. So I assume that she got the gig because of Buffy, because they wanted someone with the sensibilities of comedy and horror to apply to a vampire story and she's got that cred so makes sense we can talk about how successfully she bridged comedy and horror as we get in the movie but she makes sense to me it makes sense but in my opinion she just has no sense of pacing plotting is very uneven so i was really nervous going into this because as we've talked about the first fright night i hold so near and dear i want this fright night to be so good and to be a huge hit, but with these people at the helm, I hoped for the best, but expected the worst. Well, let's find out what you got. Give us a plot summary. Charlie Brewster is a high school student who's finally entering his cool phase now that his zits have cleared up. Hanging out with new friends Mark and Ben and new hottie girlfriend Amy, Charlie seems to have it all, but in doing so, he's distancing himself from his geeky past and LARPing friends Ed, played by Christopher Mintz-Ploss, and Adam. But when Adam doesn't show up for school unexpectedly, Ed blackmails Charlie, threatening to put on YouTube videos of them having sword fights, if Charlie doesn't help him find Adam. Searching Adam's house, Ed reveals his theory, Charlie's new neighbor Jerry, played by Colin Farrell, is a vampire and has been killing entire families in the Vegas area. 
Adam and Ed had been secretly gathering evidence against Jerry, and as such, Jerry kills Adam and his entire family in the opening scene, and after the search of Adam's house, Jerry chases Ed and changes him into a vampire. And when Ed goes missing, Charlie finds some videos Ed and Adam made in which Jerry isn't visible as he's a vampire. Charlie starts to believe, and when Jerry has an in-house date with the neighborhood stripper, Charlie calls the cops, and when Jerry talks the cops into believing Charlie heard the screaming of sex, Charlie breaks into Jerry's house finding a hidden collection of cells. Charlie breaks out the neighbor, but when they get out of the house, the stripper bursts into ash as the bite had turned her into a vampire. Not knowing where to turn next, Charlie's internet research leads him to local magician and occult expert Peter Vincent, played by David Tennant. But when Charlie tries to get real vampire info from Peter, Peter calls him a wacko and has him removed. But now the cat and mouse is over and Jerry is out to kill Charlie, his mother, and his girlfriend. Jerry blows up their house to make them leave. Then there's a protracted car chase ending in a wreck where Charlie's mother is seriously injured and hospitalized. But Peter Vincent calls Charlie. Pictures of artifacts Charlie left with Peter turned out to be legit and Peter wanted to offer information. But a vamped out Ed gets into Peter's penthouse disguised as a delivery man and Charlie and Amy fight Ed while Peter hides in his panic room. Ed is staked, but Jerry comes after them, and fleeing to a nightclub in the hotel, Jerry captures and turns Amy. Charlie waits for daylight and arms up to go take out Jerry, and is aided at the last moment by Peter Vincent, who brings a special stake that, if it's used to stake Jerry, all vampires Jerry turned will revert to human. A fight ensues where dozens of vampires crawl out of the ground and Peter is bitten, but Charlie sets himself on fire and flings himself at Jerry, staking the vampire, and Peter and Amy are returned to human, and Charlie and Amy get to use Peter Vincent's penthouse as a sex pad as credits roll. So there we have it, a lot like the original, but some key differences as well. The differences they made were huge in certain parts, and I loved the music in the opening credits, and I loved the font in the opening credits. Oh man, I hated the font in the opening credits. I couldn't even read it. The 3D made it worse. <laughs> I love the scrawling. It was like someone like did it with their fingernails, and they were trapped in a cell or something. It was great. I don't know what the hell it was, but I know this. I couldn't read it. I had no oh. idea who was in this movie based on the opening credits. I had no idea who produced this movie. All I know is it was hurting my eyes to attempt and read it because it was so in-your-face 3D and so wispy and white. And whoever did this should be fired because I think credits should be legible. Well, I agree with that last comment, but I disagree. I thought it was lots of fun. I thought a little bit of a mood was going on, especially with the organ. I love they used an organ with the music underneath it. I can't knock the score, but I can tell you this. I was missing the old score. That's is the old fan of me going, they didn't get as close. Sometimes I could let everything go about my feelings about the original movie, embrace this movie's new turns, but with this score, when I think about how great Come To Me was, and just with a synthesizer and a bass guitar, how much mood and a cool vibe they got off that original movie, I don't think the score was anything more than serviceable for this film. It did not capture a spirit for me, although I agree, I like the organ. I think the score is fine, but it's by no means exceptional. I did, because of my love of the original, look on iTunes where they have the score for purchase for this, and I listened to it. Sounds like a million other scores, really. Sure. There's no reason to purchase the score coming from the guy who purchases most scores. <laughs> <laughs> but we start also with an opening kill. The opening is great. I'm going to mm -hmm. just put it out there right now. They trick 
all the Fright Night people because you come in thinking, oh, this is exactly the same thing. We're in a house. We hear teenagers making out. Peter Vincent is on the TV. They're doing the exact same thing. Well, surprise, it's not. It's an attack. We start not with a long-building mood like the original. We are right in the thick of a whole family being slaughtered by Jerry. This shocked me quite a bit. And then I realized, well, you know, it's current audience. We got to start with a bang before we start having our character intro and build up. So I went with it. Now, to jump way far ahead, the first time I saw this film, I misremembered what we were seeing because I see this opening kill. We don't know who these characters are. At first, I'm thinking maybe that's Charlie because you don't get a clear look. They had dark hair. And when they then cut away from the death, you see bodies being dragged off. The kid's hiding under the bed with a gun. It then cuts to the neighborhood. And I'm waiting to try to see in that horrible font like two days earlier or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. They were playing with the timeline. Yeah. And then, much later on, we find out that Jerry killed Peter Vincent's parents. And so I'm like, oh, that was Peter Vincent as a kid. Oh, so that's what you thought. I thought the first time walking out, I'm like, that opening kill was Peter Vincent's parents. Oh, okay. But then when I watched it the second time, I realized on TV was an ad for Peter Vincent. And they were talking about a girl coming out of a grocery store being bitten, which is something Ed talks about later. So I finally deduced that this is Adam. Yeah. Ed and Charlie's missing friend. Plus, we do see Adam in pictures and in old photos that Ed and Charlie have. I mean, we never see them in the present tense together, but we piece together that he was their third amigo in their nerd world. True, but mostly he's behind the camera talking. You don't get very good look at him. And this opening scene is very quick. You don't get a great look at him here either. So I had some confusion as to what was going on beyond, oh, it's an opening kill. What I love about this opening kill is he's under the bed, scared out of his mind. He's looking towards the camera, and slowly his father's body is being slid away. And I want to say, we always complain with 3D necessary. The 3D enhances that feeling. The 3D creates the depth that actually makes that moment sing even better. He's trying to put bullets in the gun, and we can see that body moving the 3D underlines that. I put away all my gripes instantly about I didn't want to see it in 3D when I saw the scene. But then we get to the characters who we know to be returning from previous installments. Charlie, played by Anson Yelchin, who, even though his name is Charlie Brewster, because as I was trying to find more about Anton out, I watched Charlie Bartlett. <laughs> But now I have this desire to call him Charlie Bartlett instead of Charlie Brewster this whole film. (laughs) I like this guy. I haven't seen much from him, but, you know, in Star Trek and in Terminator Salvation, I feel like he did a lot with very little. And I feel like in this role is better than, dare I say it, William Ragsdale. (laughs) Whoa, no, not better than Ragsdale. How could anybody be better than Ragsdale? (laughs) I know, I know, I'm I'm really saying something big there, but uh, (laughs) I think he's better than William Ragsdale. And I, too, am a fan of his because of the Charlie Bartlett performance. Say what you will about the movie, but he himself in that role was was quite good. He was also very good in Alpha Dog, a movie I can't recommend highly enough. Not only do I think that he is more relatable as a character and that he's doing more with his performance, I think his conflict here is a little bit more clearly defined as well. I mean, I like the fact that he is in transition, that he used to be hanging out with the uncool kids, and that now he has a shot at high school royalty in his 
his senior year, he's got a hot girlfriend. He's quote-unquote got cool friends who are, of course, complete douches, but <laughs> he's on the route, and his dilemma is, if I believe Ed and his stories of vampires, then that's going to cost me my cred in high school, so I just can't support him. And I think it makes him unlikable at first. We're not immediately drawn to him because I think we want to like Ed, but I feel like it's a more satisfying character and a more satisfying conflict than anything ever going on in the Ragsdale iteration of Charlie. I agree. Now, his douchey friends, I know both of these guys. One is the boyfriend on the sitcom Modern Family. Yes. The other one, if you don't recognize him as an actor, maybe you recognize his smile as being reminiscent of that guy from that Apes movie that opened a couple weeks ago. Yes, the Oscar host brother. Yes, Dave Franco, who I know from TV's Scrubs, the latter not-so-good season. But I like both of these guys. They have good personality, and they play douches really well. Oh, so too well. (laughs) I could argue too well. You know, even though he's James Franco's brother, every time I saw him, he looked like an evil, douchey Zac Efron. (laughs) He he already looked vampire. Like There's something about his smile that's like bearing fangs anyway. Like Even before he gets turned, I'm like, he creeped me out. When he smiles, I see his brother in him. You see the family resemblance. But yeah, even on Scrubs, he was a likable douche. And so when I saw him playing kind of a similar role here, only not so likable, I easily went with it. Sure. They're the devils on Charlie's shoulders that kind of tell him, you're lucky to even be holding on to Amy. Don't you dare go anywhere near this nerd or we'll disown you. And we need to hate them in order to like Charlie. I think it works for that reason. But God, I hated these guys. And what's funny is it's bringing back so many other movies like Can't Buy Me Love, The New Guy, all these movies about geeks that become cool. And I'm getting that all in five minutes here. Yeah, I had the same note. Can't Buy Me Love was in my head for the first part of this movie with these two guys. And I thought that was a really great way to get us to know Charlie quickly. And also, not necessarily like Ed completely. You understand both people's points of views, but what Ed does to Charlie to get his way, blackmailing him, it necessarily doesn't make him a great guy. And it was really kind of nice that these guys both have flaws, and they're not perfect people. But you look at Christopher Mintz Plotz, and you look at Poots, and (laughs) I know where I'd go. (laughs) He wants the Poots. When Amy pulls up in the car, she's got two friends with her, and I'm like, Charlie doesn't just have a girlfriend, Charlie has a harem. But then we never see those two girls again. I thought that was a mistake. I thought those were easy vampire bait. Unless they're in the finale. There's a lot of things going on in the, in the finale that I couldn't identify who the other vampires were. They might have been there, but I agree. I don't recognize seeing them again. So this is a radical departure from the original. Amy being hot. Very, very different. <laughs> Amanda Beers disagrees with you, sir. <laughs> But, you know, they definitely wanted to play it last time like she was an unexceptional, timid, sexually inexperienced woman. Whereas here, the presumption is Amy is a hot girl that could have anyone in the school that she wanted, and Charlie is way out of his league dating her. It's a new dimension. It is not how they play the original. How did it work for you guys? I felt like it explained some of Charlie's timidness, right? Charlie's trying to be with her and the very first time we see charlie his mom's like well how are things going with amy and he's like well she hasn't dumped me yet yes he is constantly waiting for that shoe to drop because he feels he has to put on airs in order to impress her she eventually tells him i know you're a nerd and that's what i like about you i mean the presumption is if you idolize somebody they must in turn idolize you in order for it to work out but the truth of the matter is usually they've looked past all of your fronts i mean it wouldn't take long to realize that charlie is posturing 
here. I mean, he was mm-hmm. those sword fighting videos that he was doing with Ed. He was 16 years old, so it, it was maybe like a year or two ago. I mean, this is a recent transition of him going from nerd to cool. By the same token, that kind of self-doubt doesn't necessarily work for me because usually when you're that insecure, it damns the relationship anyway because the other person eventually gets frustrated with your neuroses. Uh, well, wait for the sequel. <laughs> I think it's coming. <laughs> I'm going to wait a long time based on my theater audiences. <laughs> Overall, though, throughout the whole movie, I very much like what they did with Amy and the changes they made to the character. But I don't think we need a repeat of the Amy character from the first movie in this one. I think it would have damaged the movie if we had that. And also, changing character, we've mentioned him a bit, Ed? No longer evil Ed, just Ed. Well, it would have been wrong to do a waxwork. It may have been even impossible for an actor to emulate what Stephen Jeffries was doing. But I'm of two minds with the McLovin Ed. I feel like on one hand, when you hire Christopher Minsplatz, you're going to get what he's giving you, and he's doing exactly what he should. But on the other hand, he's just not as interesting as Stephen Jeffries. He's more tragic, you know, and more typical. I mean, he's exactly what you would expect from a nerd friend. He is giving you everything when you come into the theater knowing he's in this role that you think he's going to do. Whereas Stephen Jeffries, you never knew what he was going to do next or how he was going to respond to any given moment. Now, I've unintentionally seen every movie he's been in Except for his voiceover stuff, like Train Your Dragon. But Role Models, Year One... I'm not saying I'm seeing good movies here, but what I kind of hoped for was something different with him, because we talked in our kick-ass podcast, Stuart, about how he was McLovin, but he was a different type of McLovin. Here, it seemed like he was just back at old McLovin phase. Yeah. When I went into this, I was hoping that we get a little bit more of him in Role Models, and I'm glad you brought that up, Barney, because in Role Models, he was playing a lot of the stuff we know he plays, but there was a heart to it, and there was a sadness to it. And considering what we know about the character of Ed, I was hoping he'd bring that a little bit more. I agree with both of you. I think that he was exactly right casting for this. But then again, we don't get a lot of him in this movie anyway. So it might have been just the right notes for the role that they've actually written for this character. I disagree with you, Brian. I think this was miscasting because I've been to sci-fi cons, Comic-Con mm-hmm. and all that, and okay. I've seen the McLovins there. I've been to horror cons. If you wanted the Ed-type character, the horror guy, it was different. It's a different type of demo, and it's a different stereotype they could have really played up and still been geeky, but been more freaky instead of just nerdy the way they went. I like McLovin in movies. I like him here, but I just think they could have done better with this character. Well, he's not goth, and he's not horror guy. Right. It should be said, nobody here is necessarily a horror movie fan, unlike the last one where they both were. Here, neither one of them is into a horror scene. They're just geeks. They dress up like superheroes. They have Magic the Gathering posters in his room. I think it was a perfect casting for the role here, and I think he was a good choice because they're not going for that. They're going for, why would you believe this nerd who has the ability to go into a fantasy world? By the same token, he's still the guy who's going to start talking about staking the vampires and have the bag of weaponry and whatnot. So I felt like he was still playing that window into the horror world. The way he goes, Dracula's a character, not a species, things like that. I felt like he was still trying to be the gateway to horror that Charlie wasn't. Well, the gateway to fantasy. I changed the word horror. He is the one that still wants to play make-believe, and Charlie will have none of it, because it's going to cost him the hot girlfriend that he's wanted and coveted. 
It's a good conflict. I think we're all pretty much on the same page, but maybe on the opposite end. I'm right in the middle. I think he works. I'm not sure who would have been a better evil Ed other than going with an unknown. But at the same time, I can't not think about the old movie and miss what they did. And to that, I would go ahead and say, if you're changing things about Fright Night, and this setup is very, very different, do we even need an evil Ed here? Is this character functional to the story? I would say no. I could have lived without Ed because essentially he's taken out of the movie pretty early. He's here to set up the idea that Jerry's a vampire. He's the one that tells Charlie he's a vampire, which is very different than the last one. Last time it was a rear window scenario where he happened to be peeping on his neighbor and lo and behold out come the fangs. Here everything is delivered to him by this geeky friend he'll have nothing to do with. And then shortly thereafter... Ed's bitten. This bothered me a lot the first time. It's like, where's the discovery? Where's the first act of this film? Did it feel like we were just jumping straight into act two? Because we start with the opening kill, and ten minutes later, Ed's all like, your neighbor's a vampire, and you have to go kill him because he's already killed our friend. It felt like there wasn't enough setup, there wasn't enough discovery, it was just instant bam, and instant Ed gone. I liked having Ed back because I got a huge smile when he says, you're so cool, Brewster. (laughs) But beyond that, yeah, the way it goes down and as little as he's in it, it almost feels redundant to have Adam and Ed. Well, actually, I'm going to disagree with both of you. I think some of what you guys may be saying here is because you love the first movie and know the first movie so much. From where I'm sitting, just being new to the series, I think having Ed introduce this and then having Charlie discover that Ed was right afterwards and having that whole thing we already talked about, about how he wants to be the cool kid now and he's trying to disassociate himself with his fantasy past. To have him come back around because he discovers once Ed is missing, all this kind of stuff, that's where you get the development from. I agree with you both. I have a note here saying to myself about why they kill Ed so early. And then I realized you don't need him. Let me be clear. I agree with you. I like the way that this is set up, but then my problem becomes when Ed is taken out, he's gone from this movie for like an hour. And when he comes back, I'm not sure they couldn't have done a better way of doing what Ed did and setting up that conflict. You're right, with Adam or with somebody else, it just seems like a waste of an Ed. That's all I'm saying. I also really missed the energy that McLovin brought because he has some funny lines about tying Stretch Armstrong around your balls and whatnot. That was not funny. <laughs> it was, that was funny. funny. Uh, we're going to talk about what, the comedy in this movie, and I'm going to largely say it doesn't work. I hate it. Was it too that close th- to home, Stuart? <laughs> <laughs> I still want my stretch back, Stuart. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. But I, I would really... not want my stretch back if my friend did that. You can keep that. Thank you. Ugh. <laughs> And I also liked the, and I'm so pissed you think I read Twilight. I mean, I liked his lines. I liked his energy because, honestly, Charlie is a bit of a dour character. He's so insecure the whole movie, and he's always reactive. And yeah. he, he never gets a ch- much like what William Ragsdale, I feel like Anton Yelchin has, like, the least written part here. He has the least to do. Well, he has the most to change. He does become a very active character in the end. But I like that about Charlie. I like the fact that he's surrounded by these colorful types. It is much like the last one. He is the least interesting person on screen, usually, because everyone else around him is so big and broad. But I think you need someone like that, and I think he's relatable. He may be dour, and we may want him to be more active, but I never felt like I couldn't identify with his plight. I agree with there. He was never unlikable. He just is necessarily bland. They really increased the mom's role here and talk about 
a bigger presence. Tony Collette's mom is pretty big and almost tries, like, sometimes to be her son's friend, almost. Did you guys think the mom need to have such a bigger role in this movie? First of all, isn't she a bit young to be Charlie's mom? I felt like they were way too close in age. If they were going with real-life ages, she would have had to have him when she was 17. Okay. Which is possible. Yeah. It's possible, but I liked that they modernized her. You know, the last mom was interested in Jerry as a eligible bachelor next door. Mm-hmm. Also, I liked that she was a realtor. Best product placement ever, all those Century 21 signs. Well, didn't you know that they were going to use them as a stake eventually? In the we movie? knew, and they knew that we knew. We just didn't know when they were going to do it. That said, she's also, like Ed, a character that is given a little bit to do, and then is taken out and not really seen again. That's my problem. I like Tony Collette. I always think she brings something really cool in any movie that she's in. I was happy to see her here. I think it's relatable that kids today see their parents more as, you know, older siblings than they do as authority figures, and it's just a different relationship now. It, it is like she's a big sis, and he kind of looks out for her. All of that really works. My problem is, much like the original movie, is once they're done with her, they're really done with her. She lies in the bed, they put a crucifix up, and we really don't see her until one of the last scenes in the movie. She does not have any role in the climax, and that seems like a mistake if she's going to be in some of these action moments. But she doesn't have much of a role in the movie at all. I think having Tony Collette in this was great, but you don't need Tony Collette for this role. I don't think the mom was needed all that much. If you want to take her out of the equation completely, I don't remember one thing she does here that's necessary. She doesn't even invite Jerry in. She's not playing up the flirting thing with Jerry next door, as you said. The other neighbor does that, so... No, but she is. When we're introduced to Jerry... All the women are swooning. They want Jerry, and she's not immune to it. I liked it, because when she gets called out on it by Charlie, she's like, I'm not that kind of woman. <laughs> she actually has a funny <laughs> little bit where she gets called out and She's like, no, that's not me. I wouldn't just invite him in. I feel like if you get someone like Tony Collette for this role, she deserves to have a full arc. And for half the movie, she's explainable and understandable here. But when they dump her, I'm mad because I feel like, eh, you got Tony Collette here. Let's do something. Let's improve upon the original. Let's give her a full storyline. Let's not just jettison her from the action once we're into the horror part. I gotta say, though, I feel like this movie is somewhat compromised. I feel like there's big chunks missing from this movie. I said it already. I feel like the first act is gone. And there might have been a lot more to do with Ed and Tony Collette before Ed was bitten. I'm not quite sure where, but this movie, it just decides that it can't spend any time really introing us to the characters. We've got to have the deaths. It's funny because I found myself in a very weird predicament with this movie because I'm usually the one who, when we watch films from the 70s, I'm like, ah, this is too goddamn slow. And you guys are like, well, you have to let it build. You have to let it build. But then I like the builds of 80s and 90s movies, but it seems like it, in the evolutionary chart, the build I like is now gone. It's too slow for current generation audiences. They can't have any character development. It's just bam, kill, bam, kill, bam, kill. And so I think that from what I've read, Steven Spielberg came into the editing room on this and was like, all right, we're going to change this. We're going to change this. We're going to change this and really speed things along. We don't need scenes of people drinking coffee discussing if there can be vampires. That's a direct quote from Marty Knoxon that Spielberg put in. So I wonder if there's more and we just weren't allowed to see it. 
I absolutely disagree with you. I think they give us plenty of what we need as it goes. I think it's very economical in the way it does it. That's the problem. It was too economical for me. And the first time I saw the film, I actually was sitting there like, I wanted a more slow build. I wanted a little bit more horror. I wanted something more than just Ed going, he's a vampire. I wanted more reveal there. But that's because I love this first movie. The reason I went back is because I don't know that I was fair to this the first time. The first time I watched this movie, I only watched it as Fright Night. And the second time I watched this movie, I put the notepad away and turned the comparisons down and just tried to watch it for what it is. And for what it is, it kind of works, but I still feel like the first half hour of this film moves too quickly and I would have liked more build. It just doesn't create atmosphere. For here, what's dramatically different and changes everything, it's not the pacing, it's not the characterization and all of that. It's the fact that they have removed the Hitchcockian quality of, I think I just saw my neighbor suck the blood of someone else from their neck. That was the hook of Fright Night was that it was rear window. And here, that is all gone. It is not about a kid slowly discovering that his neighbor is a vampire. He comes to that realization rather quickly. It's entirely different. The relationship here is, there is a man in the neighborhood that is treating me like a boy and is taking away my girlfriend and my mother, and I have to be the man to fight him. And it's just an entirely different story because of that. That said, they're blessed with an incredible gift of having Colin Farrell playing the antagonistic man of the hood. This movie gets nothing else completely right. I'm going to say right now, Colin Farrell, this movie would be nowhere without him. He is incredible in the film. I agree. I'm so glad to hear you say that because you guys were so high and I liked very much, but you guys are so high in Chris Strannon's performance from the first movie. And so to hear you say that, Stuart, makes me happy because I thought I was going to have to fight both of you on this podcast about Colin Farrell as the vampire in this movie. Oh, no argument. I, it's really clear. In fact, I dare say anyone could challenge him as not being great in this movie. It's a different movie, but I'll go ahead and say it. I enjoy watching him more than Chris Sarandon. I just think that he is maybe the best vampire I've seen in several decades. He is great in this. I always like Colin Farrell, even if I don't like the movies he's in. We're going to be talking about Daredevil in a few weeks, Stuart, and we'll get to see what I consider another great Colin Farrell performance. And here, he chews up the screen and he chews up the apples. And it's a different kind of performance, though, and I think it's great that they differentiated it. If he was doing the exact same kind of stuff that Chris Serrano was doing, and he's doing a little bit here and there, but if he's doing the exact same performance, I'm not sure this would have worked for this movie. What he did for the tone of this movie was phenomenal. And I love that scene later on when he talks to Charlie, etc. There are certain scenes in this that he shines, and there are other scenes where he's just there, and he's, when he walks, that skulk. Everything he's doing, it works for me. I don't know. I can't say every scene works for me. There are certain scenes like when he's getting the beer from Charlie, but I just can't figure figure out what he's trying to play there. What are you talking about? That's like the best scene in the whole movie is when he's staring down him and, and is pretending to be like, hey, dude. And you can just see from the flare of his nostrils and his eyes that he is just sizing him up. Like, does has he figured out who I am? How am I going to handle this? He is trying to figure out what he needs to do about Charlie. He's waiting for Charlie to invite. And the longer that Charlie prolongs that, the more he realizes he's got a problem. I love his lines there where he's like, your girlfriend, she is ripe. I bet there's a line of guys dying to pluck that. I love the delivery there, but I just can't decide is that supposed to be threatening or is it supposed to be buddy-buddy? But that's the point, Arnie. I think that's the point this movie is making. Guys are shitty to one another. (laughs) Buddy-buddy of a bunch of (laughs) alpha males is really an antagonistic, nasty little game about who can get the chick. 
And that's what this is. He's coming off like a friend in a very old school Alpha May way. And it is threatening. Of course it's threatening. Charlie's trying to play the game. They have a great bit of business about him wearing basketball shoes, but he doesn't actually play basketball. It takes and, a real man to wear puce. Yeah. <laughs> and Colin Farrell is like, yeah, anytime you want to play a pickup game, I'm game. Well, Charlie doesn't know sports. He's a nerd. <laughs> but he liked the shoes, you know. And that is sort of the kind of character. You talk about not having character-defining moments. That was a very character-defining moment. I like that exchange. And Colin Farrell gets it. He is old-school macho man. You know, like, sit down after I've had my woman with a beer and watch TV. He's blue-collar. Hell, he wears a wife beater, you know, <laughs> which I want to <laughs> underline the fact that that t-shirt was given that name for the style of man that would beat his wife and wear it. I mean, that he is old school man. Charlie is a very new school, modern guy. And that's the clash here. Charlie's friends with his mother. Colin just wants to bang women and suck their blood. And that's part of the conflict about what's the proper way to be a man here. I mean, that's the underlying tension between Charlie and Jerry. I liked the little exchange in the eye acting and both actors in that scene as well. Mm -hmm. So what was being said and what wasn't being said, talk about character relationships being built. That entire scene did that. Yeah, there's no need to sprout any fangs. This is the most brutal fight in the whole movie right here. I enjoyed the scene. I just, I had question marks around it. I liked how Charlie is testing the boundaries of how far in can he even reach. I liked all of that. But I think Colin Farrell did wonderful in this film. The man, though, has obviously never done any actual blue-collar hard labor, as we see when he grabs the shovel and starts digging the yard. If you dig much of a yard like that, you're gonna have a bad back real quick. He's a vampire! He's a <laughs> he's vampire. vampire! He's got super strength. I wrote it up as that. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he can do things that nobody else can. He does throw people around like the ragdolls, so he doesn't flex his muscles, but he definitely has brutal strength if he wants to. Also, vampires have the ability to find a gas line instantly. <laughs> he could smell it out? I don't know. Well, he's been working <laughs> underground. He knows where, he, that, you know. It is true. He has, and I like that quality about his house. You know, the last time, in the original Fright Night, his house is very much a haunted house, you know, with gothic Victorian paintings of women of long ago. This is, it's, I like the unfinished part of it. I like the fact that when we get into a secret lair, he doesn't put on airs. You know, it's like all this unfinished doors. and It just, I, there's some something very creepy about the secret component of his house in the basement and all of that. I really was working for me. And on a larger point, I like where they've set this movie. I really like this sort of anonymous, every house looks the same, tracked housing Las Vegas suburbs. You know, Las Vegas is one of the cities hit hardest by the housing market collapse. I mean, they can't fill those homes. They expanded and expanded, and it is just filled with these kinds of empty, desolate communities. If I were a vampire looking for anonymity, this is the perfect place to hide. Also, his schedule is explained away very easily, which is also very smart. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas lights up at night. The only thing I don't get, and I didn't get it in the first one either, is why would you move in anywhere and then start attacking your neighbors? You know, I, I feel like that's a mistake. <laughs> He's preying on all these school kids. I'm like, no, get tourists, because those are the ones that people won't be able to track down to your house. If you breed off your community, eventually, no matter how anonymous and forgotten the suburbia has been, eventually what meager police force there is will figure you out, and you will be busted and have to move. But that seemed like a short game, and he needed to be playing the long game. In the first one, though, he wasn't killing neighbors, he was killing hookers. That's true. He only targeted Charlie after he realized it was going to be a problem for him to keep doing the call girls and escorts. You're right. Here, I don't understand why he 
gives a shit about Charlie, though, because he's killing entire families, and he's building this army they reveal later on. So, really, he could have just waited around. He didn't need to make it a big hunt, a big chase, right? He didn't need to blow up Charlie's house. He could just, again, like you say, play the long game, and he'd get Charlie eventually. I agree. He shows his hand really early once he decides to attack Tony Collette and Charlie and all of that. That feels like it does come out of almost nowhere. But I think if he realized that he could be attacked during the day, and this was happening right next door, you know, it takes a while to get there. They take what is essentially the first part of the original movie and push it more towards the middle by giving us Doris, the go-go dancer slash stripper. Because all good strippers are named Doris. Yes. The vampire's name is Jerry, Arnie. <laughs> it works perfectly for this. But Colin Farrell is attacking Charlie, but he's there under the presumption of borrowing a six or a beer. The beer is for Doris and him. That's what we find out. And when they finally get to the rear window homage, Charlie already knows he's a vampire, and it's kind of wasted on the moment. But we see Jerry seduce Doris, and then there's a scream. What I didn't like about this scene... And perhaps it was necessary, if we're calling it Fright Night, to have the scene where Amy and Charlie are about to have sex, but Charlie's too distracted by the vampire. But it didn't play for me because of the new Charlie-Amy dynamic here. I didn't see either why Charlie just couldn't put that away for half hour and have this beautiful woman coming onto him right there. I think you could make time away from the window there, Charlie, in this situation to help this girl out with her needs. The same kind of pull away from the girl didn't make a lot of sense here. Wait, you're saying that he should have taken the time to have sex when he knew that his neighbor was about to be murdered? Um... Yeah. I think that that <laughs> might give you some performance anxiety. I mean, the pull away from the sex wasn't as strong because he already knew the answers and stuff. He wasn't suspicious, right? So... I think the scene didn't work as well as it did in the original movie. Her frustration makes no sense to me, because they don't have this relationship that we had before, where Charlie was constantly interrupted by other things. It was a one-time thing, and the way she storms out just didn't play right for me. I just didn't think it played as well as it in the first movie. Yeah, we can all agree on that. The conflict was more understandable in the first movie. By making her more sexually confident, we would assume that she would just be a little bit more forceful in the scene, rather than running away but maybe she wants a man i mean i think that's an underlying thing here is that at the end of the day she wants someone like colin farrell that's just gonna just you know colin farrell when he's having his beer exchange says something to the effect of women need to be shown and tamed and on some level that's what amy is wanting out of charlie she likes a sensitive guy she knows he's a nerd and she likes that about him that's why she's drawn to him but she'd also like just a little bit of alpha male here and he's not able to deliver it yeah, I mean, there is that, it's up to you to look out for them, you up for that guy kind of bit, and, I mean, to me, that's just setting up that Charlie has to be the hero, that Amy's not going to take care of herself, and Charlie's mom's not going to take care of herself. Charlie has to be the one. Well, it wouldn't be satisfying if they did what they did in Friday Night 2 and had Amy doing all of the sleuthing and, <laughs> and saving. I mean, we can all agree, we want Charlie to step up, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It's far more of a partnership here, I felt, at least for the middle part. Which is a modern sensibility. You know, a female screenwriter, she's probably conscious of those things. She doesn't want to write another damsel in distress scenario. And she comes from Buffy, for Christ's sake. Right. So let's talk about the scene when he goes into the house. Love it. Charlie breaks into the house using his convenient iPhone how to pick a lock app. I love that. Loved it. And 
Also, he continues the modern sensibilities of the character by taking pictures with his iPhone of all the stuff he sees around the house, which is really kind of smart as well. So I like the modern stuff they do there. I was really confused, though, on how when Jerry finally comes back when he's snooping, how Jerry doesn't bust him right away, but then we see what happens later in the scene. So I was a little confused for that for a while. There was a moment where Colin Farrell stops and sniffs, and I'm like, all right, he smells Charlie. He knows Charlie's there, and he's just going to fuck with Charlie. It's the cat and mouse. He may even know that he's watching when he's taking Doris. We know this much. Colin Farrell always knows more than what he's letting on. You know, he talks on the surface about all things, but in those eyes, you can see the brooding. You can see the plotting in him. You can see the evil behind those eyes. And yeah, he knows something is up. We don't know how much he knows, but he allows situations to unfold and only responds when he feels necessary. He wants Charlie to try to rescue Doris because it's going to scare the shit out of him when he steps into the sunlight. It was a good surprise. It was, but first of all, when we see Jerry biting Doris and Charlie's watching, part of me's thinking, come on, Charlie, you got to try to save her, right? You got to do something to try to save her life, even if it means you're going to reveal yourself. And he just stands there, and I kind of turned against the character for a moment, but then Doris makes the shh motion with her finger, and I'm like, oh, that makes the moment a lot more tender is now she wants Charlie to stay there and she wants him to escape even at her own life. I loved that moment. Yeah, it was. It was really affecting the fact that she knew there was nothing she could do for herself anymore. And you know what? I think there's another element here. On some level, she was enjoying it. I mean, that moment is as erotic as when Sarandon is with Amy at the fireplace. I mean, he really is taming her as he is claiming he wants to do. I took it a totally different way. I didn't think she was enjoying being bitten. But earlier, we see the neighbor flirting with Charlie. I feel like she's sacrificing herself because maybe she was into Charlie a little bit. Is this the scene when we see Colin Farrell has to get himself amped up for it before he can bite her? Like, he has to, like, I don't know what he's trying to do, almost like coughing up a hairball kind of thing. But he was, like, changing a little bit or moving his jaw around or something before he bites her. Is it this scene or later in the movie? Well, in this scene, we get to see a little bit of the visual CGI transformation of his jaw. And I like that they kept the look, the big jaw, big teeth look of the Fright Night vampires. Obviously, it looked a lot better with CGI than it did with some thick makeup, but... (laughs) Sure. But I liked how he had to get himself ready to do this sort of thing mm-hmm. i thought it was a great little moment because later on in the scene when charlie's trying to escape with her you know he knows what's going on the whole time and then we get the reveal at the end he does and it's just so much fun so we put all the elements together he's doing all of this for the sake of charlie there's a couple of things that i like that they brought back about vampirism which is something always classical vampire to me but we don't see much anymore and the first is The bites don't always kill. You know, usually anymore, true blood, all these things, when you bite somebody, you end up ripping their aortas out and they bleed out and they're dead when you eat them. The other thing is that if you bite somebody just once, then they become a vampire, which is something that zombies have kind of taken over. And now it's either the three bites are in so much, it's like you have to do this mutual blood-sucking thing, a turning ritual, something like that. So I liked that one bite and the stripper was a vampire. Yes, I agree with that. I feel like this movie, on one hand, it's piggybacking on Twilight. It knows that it got a green light only because everything vampire is getting a green light these days. But I think it really is sometimes overtly 
stating that it's trying to get back to the idea that vampires are sexual monsters. You know, not that they're romantics, not that they're, you know, characters from Wuthering Heights. You know, they throw <laughs> the Wuthering Heights novel in there and talks about it. It's great because that's why they're together. They're well aware of what's influencing the genre right now, and I think they'd like to get back to what the original Fright Night was doing of, let's just make it scary. Let's make this guy a threat. Let's not have it be about vampires being sensitive souls who want to be with you, but they just can't. They're pigs. They're loudish, abusive pigs that hypnotize you with their sexual magnetism, but aren't people you want to be with. You want to be with Charlie, you don't want to be with Jerry. I think that's good. I like the way that they're staking their claim to the way that the original movie did it. When he runs out of the house and Jerry lets them and the ashing comes, this I thought was a great use of 3D. Every time the vampire explodes, it's in your face and remarkable. Yeah. I just like the moment period. I thought it was awesome that she disappeared like that. None of us expected that to happen. I expected it to happen. I expected there to be a reaction to sunlight. I didn't expect her to explode. Correct. I expected there to be a sun problem. Right, yeah. I did not. I didn't think she'd get away. Let me put it that way. But we didn't anticipate that moment. The explosion is the right way to play it. This is a bigger, more action-y Fright Night. So just do it big. I got to also just say, ashing does well in 3D. I remember one of the great things about Avatar in 3D was when the tree falls and all the debris is flying around, all that particulate in the air. There's something about that that looks really, really good. It works here, too. Every time one of the vampires is ashed in 3D, it's just you want to reach out and touch it. I recommend to all... 3D filmmakers, find a reason to have snow or ash or embers in all of your movies because it looks really cool in 3D. What isn't so great about the 3D, I want to, since we're talking about it, I got to say they use smoke and darkness sometimes to set a mood. A lot of this movie they've wisely filmed at the time that the sun has gone down, but there's still light out. So there's kind of a blue tint of the evening that works for a lot of it. But when they get into night night in the darkness of the house, I actually had a thing where it looked blurry. Oh, that is a big problem with all 3D is blurriness. And yeah, Mm -hmm. especially during one of the upcoming scenes, the car chase, I could hardly see anything. And it's known that perhaps my AMC theater is one of those cheap asses. They actually turn down the brightness to... Yes. And they do that more on the 3D films. And because you have the darker glasses, the bulbs actually need to be turned up to compensate for that. But I'm almost wondering if parts of this movie wouldn't be better in 2D. You'd lose the ashing. But God, there was so much I couldn't see or so much that was so blurry during action scenes that it frustrated the hell out of me. We did talk about this during Final Destination 5. The same thing happened to me there. When you have a bunch of glass breaking and there's a bunch of things on the screen, it was very blurry. When it was a few pieces that were highlighted, it was crystal clear. It did the same thing here for me too. And so I think it was all in one kind of area. It doesn't work. But when it's separated, even by like, you know, a centimeter, it works much better. And it's just, maybe it's a technology, maybe. I think also some of it is just the camera movement because we get to a scene a little later on, Jerry blows up the house in a way that I find completely stupid, pulling up the gas line, and I don't know that that would actually work, nor do I like the thought of him ripping it out, but they have a car chase after that. And it's so fake. Everything feels so fake. It's like I have seen more realistic Xbox games, the way the camera's moving all around in unrealistic fashions, and you're seeing all this. And that's where the blur was terrible for me, was during all of this fakey camera work. That's too bad that you didn't enjoy that scene, because that car scene is awesome. I want to say that I like the camera moving in the scene, but it looked completely fake to me. 
I thought the car wasn't moving and the camera was moving. I agree. It looked like rear projection. I did not believe that the car was on the road. No. I feel like I'm more forgiving than you guys about that kind of thing. It's a movie. It isn't (laughs) real. I agree. It does not look like it would if we were really in that car. That said, the way they're moving the camera, I'm not going to give this movie full props. They're stealing from two movies that recently did this. There was a remake of Let the Right One In called Let Me In where they had an incredible car chase. They did something very, very similar. And this is awesome. So almost beat for beat taken from a movie called Children of Men. Similar one take, six minute long car chasing. They do it much better there. But I like this. I always like these kind of car chases where they can actually move around the car and create the realism of things impacting you. When Chris Sarandon's car hits their car and the airbags deploy, that was great. Come on. But I couldn't enjoy it. I liked the concept, but maybe it was the 3D, maybe it was the CGI, but the people never looked real to me. It looked like digital avatars. I never thought these people were real people in this car. And it was because of so much CGI fake 3D camera work. And the blur and everything else, I was sucked so out of the scene. I understand it's not real, but it just looked like I was watching How to Tame Your Dragon or something else that was pure CGI. When the hand comes up through the floor, that completely worked for me. Mm-hmm. When the airbags pop, that worked for me. Yeah. But when you had the angle from the, where the hand was, and all looking down at the hand, those three heads, they look like they weren't even in there. I see what you're seeing, Stuart. Yes, I liked a lot of it, too. But I'm seeing exactly what Arnie sees, too. So there are parts of it that completely worked, the parts of it that didn't. And if every time you see the windows on the sides of the car, it completely reminds you that they're on a stage because of the way it's done. So elements certainly did work. But elements certainly did not. It's the least successful version. I do urge people to go check out Let Me In and Children of Men to see it done even better. But I like it. I guess what I'm saying is I have a soft spot for movies that attempt this kind of car chase. A lot of car chases leave me cold. But ones that try to utilize long takes and moving the camera as opposed to quick cuts and rapid fire editing, I dig it. And so, yes, is it a little bit hokey? And yes, does the CGI show it seems? Absolutely. It's not perfect. But I like this scene and I admit that the house blowing up was kind of a ridiculous way to start it but I liked the whole sequence I thought it was pretty exciting oh I disagree I didn't mind the car chase so much and I liked when he's standing in front of his truck and Charlie says hit him but then when he starts dragging under the car, the car's going at high speed and he's punching through the floorboards, uh, it's, it, it just seemed ridiculous to me. And this from the action movie lover. It's the wrong type of thing for, all of a sudden, your vampire to be the Terminator. And th- I was getting Terminator 1 flashbacks. No, you're right. To, to get, that's what they're doing. At this point, you're right. It has left the horror genre and the comedy genre completely, and we're in a big old action movie, which they haven't really done in either of the previous Fright Nights. I thought it was conflicting with tone for the rest of the movie. When you take me so far out of the scene, reminding me that they're on a set, I thought Johnny Dangerously, when the car was staying still and everything in the, in the background was moving. <laughs> you shouldn't stab me in the back with the Century 21 sign. My mother stabbed me in the back with the Century 21 sign. <laughs> Once. <laughs> and then that's, and that's when we get it too. And I loved how he was barking like a dog. And I laughed out loud when you saw Chris Sarandon. I thought that was great. Yes, that was coming. Now, do you guys agree with me that he looks like a homeless Dennis Miller? <laughs> Isn't Dennis Miller a homeless Dennis Miller? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want anyone to look like Dennis Miller at this point, but uh, he's aged. What do you want me to say? He's certainly not Jerry from 1985, but I, I love the appearance. You know, they always have to have somebody from the old cast come back at the right moment for the new one. This was the perfect time to bring in Chris Sarandon. We're not expecting it. Yeah, it was great. And it's the second time we see Chris Sarandon in a car wreck. Child's playing now. Yeah, yeah. true. Did you notice in the credits he's playing J.D.? 
I did. What does that mean? Jerry Dandridge? Oh, I didn't, oh. I didn't put that together either. I yeah. didn't get it. Yeah, that meant, I'm like, why even give him a name? I thought he was anonymous motorist, <laughs> but all right. They're smarter than me. I liked his cameo. I was happy to see him there. He gets taken out, adds to the body count. Yeah. yeah. We knew that the signs were coming. As you said, Brock, yep. we knew that those things were going to be stakes, but I didn't think it was going to be in that moment. It was good to give Tony Collette something to do before they completely throw her out of the movie and throw her in the hospital bed for the rest of the movie. I don't even understand. Yeah, we see her stab him with the sign, and the next thing, she's in a coma. Presumably, it's shock. It's terrible. It's like the screenwriter just announcing, I'm completely done with this character. She's gone. And I feel you have to justify those things. It never works for me when you just so coldly write someone off, particularly an actress I really like and want to see. The problem I had with it was we don't know exactly why she's in there. Yeah, she was in a car wreck, but so were the other two. So why did she have more injuries than the other two did? No, she was in the car the whole time. I know. I I don't get it. No, don't get it. But, of course, we have a lot of other characters. We haven't even mentioned the character that's going to play the big part in the second half of the movie. Peter Vincent, David Tennant. Now, I have never seen David Tennant in anything before. I'm not a Doctor Who fan. I'm a Tom Baker Doctor Who fan. I guess that shows my age. Like, I haven't watched Doctor Who since 1986, so I know that he's a beloved Who, but Tom Baker and the scarf will always be Doctor Who to me. And you're right. It's a big, iconic character, but the reason I watched Doctor Who was David Tennant, and he did a lot of things he was doing Doctor Who here, where he was having this broad comedy and then get intense very quickly, and you believe it. The man is a very talented actor, and when I heard he was in the movie and in this role, I thought it was great. What they did to the character and to the role, I also very much liked. They kind of modernized the whole thing, yeah. and I very much liked the tone of it. I feel like they couldn't get Russell Brand, so they called David Tennant, and it worked for me. What I love about the Russell Brand thing is, as he's talking to Charlie during the interview, he takes all the makeup off, the wig, the sideburns, the mustache, and I love they went that way. If they kept him in Russell Brand mode the entire movie, I probably would not have enjoyed it as much. The fact that he had to get off and we saw the real guy was a great move by this movie and the screenplay. I don't like David Tennant in this movie. I knew that I would be the, in the minority here, but I can honestly say this is perhaps the biggest change they've made that made me pine for the old one. I miss Roddy McDowell in this, and I don't feel like David Tennant comes close. For a couple minutes, I thought it was cute that they were doing a Chris Angel joke, and I liked the idea of modernizing it as a modern-day magician who fights vampires on a Vegas stage show. That's very clever. But a little of this guy goes a long way. And I got to say, every time Tenet came on screen, I was checking out. It's why when you did your quote at the beginning, Arnie, I had no idea what you were doing. I ignored David Tennant in this movie. I didn't find him funny at all. And here's what's funny to me is, I thought Colin Farrell was a very good vampire. I can't say he ever outshone what Chris Sarandon did to me. But this Peter Vincent, I think, is a much better character, especially for nowadays, than what Roddy McDowell did in the first one. This is the first character I feel was an upgrade. All right. To be fair, they could not do what they did in the original. There are no more late night horror hosts on TV. That is not relatable. No teens are watching horror movies late at night and seeing Elvira or Spinguli or any of those people. Gilbert Gottfried. They're gone. So they had to do something different. And if you're that close to Vegas, why not do Lampoon Vegas? But if you're going to have a character that a teen idolizes, it's got to be this guy. It can't be... Joe Bob Briggs? Yeah. <laughs> or Peter Vincent, vampire killer from British Hammer horror movies. I really like this character. I really like David Tennant's performance in this. And I, yes, I do like the actor. But I do think what they did with the character 
is also a great step up also. Because you guys remember in the last couple of podcasts, I wasn't as big on that character, what Ronnie McDowell was doing, as you two were. Yeah. And so this one, for me, really works. I loved that when he finally reveals that his parents were killed by vampires, I thought that was a great choice for the character. And talk about a little bit of exposition for the character going a long way. It certainly explains a heck of a lot about all of him. What they do with that, I hate that it was the same vampire. Yes. There has to be more than one vampire in the world. That is ridiculous. And then have Jerry remember his parents. It wasn't like he turned his parents into a coven. They're vampires now. I know. For like, what, five minutes in their lives, this guy met each other and he remembers them? Bullshit. I liked it much better when I thought the opening scene was David Tennant. I now think that's what they should have done, is the opening scene should have been David Tennant as a child, Peter Vincent's parents being killed. I don't know what else to say. I grew tired of David Tennant really rapidly. I found him really funny. In about five minutes, I was done, and I wanted something else, and I felt like he kept doing it. And you're right, maybe it's just a matter of taste. You could say the exact same thing about Roddy McDowell, but I Mm -hmm. enjoyed that a lot more. Here, it wasn't working for me, and so, yeah, the backstory, all of it felt contrived, and I couldn't understand why this guy would even help out. I mean, there's something about the pictures that he takes that convinces him, that the memorabilia connection, but it felt very tenuous that a big-time Las Vegas magician would even give this kid the time of day. Well, that's why the connection is there with his parents. See, that's why I think it works better than Rodney McDowell. Rodney McDowell was a movie star. It was a Three Amigos scenario. Here, he has a personal connection to it because his own parents were killed, and so the way he deals with it is by learning everything he can, so in case it happens to him again, he quote-unquote will be prepared as we see he's just a chicken shit but it's a nice more organic way to get him involved to have him be the exact same vampire is eye-rollingly stupid yeah i didn't hate this but i didn't like it this part of the movie in fact i was less into anytime david Tennant was on screen i was less into it wow and my problem is i don't think they used him enough I think that they introduced him too late, and then during the first attack, he just runs into the panic room and does nothing. Mm. And so when he becomes part of the final act, which we knew was coming because it's a remake and we saw the original, it doesn't feel organic to me. Mm -mm. I think that they should have used him a little bit more. They tried to bring back, when he's running into the panic room, the frady cat, cowardly lion Peter Vincent that Roddy McDowell was doing, but it doesn't fit the character David Tennant is doing. So the character Tennant brings maybe wasn't the one in the script. I understand he ad-libbed a lot of his lines. I thought he brought a great energy. I especially liked his back and forth with his Hispanic co-actress. I thought that was all hysterically funny stuff, but there was too little of it, and when he tries to become Peter Vincent Fearless Vampire Killer, it doesn't work for me at all. I want to know how he knows where Charlie lives, you know? Yeah, I had the same note. Maybe they're missing scenes. Maybe this is part of the excised cut. Maybe there is a lot more talk here. I agree with you that he needed to be introduced earlier. He is, for much of the part, just an ad running on the television sets or a face on a website. We don't meet him until very, very late, and he doesn't become important to the plot until the very, very end. And in the end, my problem with Fright Night, or at least a, a complaint we all aired, was that it ended up being about Peter Vincent. Here, I never feel like it's anything about Peter Vincent. By fixing the problem and making Charlie a much more active character in the finale, did we even need Peter Vincent at all? My thing is, though, once Colin Farrell becomes full-on homicidal vampire, we lose that cool swagger energy he has because he's just now a monstrous killer. We don't get to see any playful side of him anymore. And I think that's why they bring in David Tennant when they do, is to keep that kind of energy on the screen. And for me, it worked, but the problem is... It was too jarring. 
it was too abrupt a transition. I think we needed more Peter Vincent than just the ads on the television early on. The whole movie is paced really poorly, I feel. Yeah, I agree with you. There is an imbalance here. There are moments that I like, and then it slows down or speeds up, and it feels very weird when Ed comes back into the movie. It's a surprise, because we're in the penthouse of Peter Vincent, and we know that something's coming. It's invisible. They have a great little bit with they've invited a messenger up, and they slowly dawns on them why is a messenger coming at two in the morning. But we don't think it's Ed, but the Ed death is just not working for me. Ed Wire Foo was awful. When they start having him do the backflips and the ninja moves, Mm-mm. oh my god, that should have been cut. That was just awful. It looked so fake. The actor obviously is so uncomfortable with the rigs, if he even moved at all. Just terrible. When he does come back in, you do completely forget about him. And I think the reason they did away with Ed early, because Ed wasn't as a big a deal in this movie, to bring him back here is a nice surprise, because I thought, and they said messenger, we saw the messenger, we saw the police outfit in Jerry's closet. So I thought it was Jerry coming up to where because he had that Mm -hmm. messenger outfit. And sure enough, it was him. So it was a nice surprise. So if we didn't know the original Fright Night, I think you guys would have liked the surprise a little bit more. No, I liked the surprise. I'm not saying I didn't like the surprise, but then I didn't like anything else that happened once I got over being surprised. Yeah, exactly. I think the clumsiness and the wire foo, I took it as this guy's a brand new vampire and has no idea what he's doing or how he can do it. But then he wouldn't be doing it at all. It's It was completely that the effects were just hokey and the actor didn't look comfortable in it. If he fell on his face when he tried to do a backflip, that's the vampire not knowing his powers. This is just poor casting or poor use of the cast you have. Also, it was Death Becomes Her a little bit, too. I couldn't get that out of my head with his head was hanging off to the side. The only thing I liked was it's that Amy saves Charlie by bringing in the big mace and smacks Ed in the face. Well, don't you love how Amy is that modern kind of woman? She's not the paralyzed in fear that she does take charge. I thought that was a great thing. I also thought that uh, the David Tennant Museum of Artifacts was a lot of fun to have. I mean, convenient, of course, but it's kind of fun that they have it there and they use it. Whether or not a glass full of holy water would have evaporated in a a glass case is to be debatable. I can't believe it was full of water. Maybe he refilled it once a week. (laughs) Maybe, but I do like the whole idea of the scene where it was set and that everything was at their disposal. Let me be really micro-specific. I agree with the conception of having an action scene in this moment, in this place, using Peter Vincent's tools. All very fun. My problem is specifically with how Ed has been relegated to being a small heavy. In the original movie, you felt like Jerry targeted Ed because there was a kindred spirit. Maybe it was kind of a gay thing. Maybe it was just that we know both like the occult. But you felt that there was a really charged, tender moment. The tenderest moment of Fright Night was when he turned him. In this one, he's turning all the kids into vampires. There's nothing special about it. Ed is one of 30 that are buried under the ground. And consequently, he's just kind of meaningless. And him coming back and being a vampire doesn't really change the way Charlie feels about their past friendship. It doesn't work their storyline any better. And then just to have him killed, not even in the way that was so memorable in the original movie, it's a waste. I don't know what else to say other than, if you're going to do Ed, do him right. If you're not going to do Ed, I would have been fine with no Ed in this movie. I feel like they should have had no Ed in this movie. If they named him Steve, would have made a difference to you? If it had been Adam, the original guy, I think that would have moved it along much better. So the baggage of who Ed was from the original movie might be coming in here. If you actually name this character Philip or something else, and then have his generic friend who he dissed in the beginning of the movie and comes back later, you would not have as big a problem with it. Is that what you're saying? Yes. If you're going to imply that you were going to do what you did in the original movie with this character, you better do a close approximate or don't bother. Agreed. 
for me, not having the same connection to the original Ed, although I did love Ed's arc in the original movie. Here, I didn't mind as much, because it's just, his name is Ed, as opposed to it's exactly the same character. It's not the same character. Mm-mm. And so that's why it didn't bother me as much as it's bothering you. Yeah, I just like the fact that Jerry, you know, it was a special relationship. Jerry didn't bite everyone. Jerry had a passion. He targeted women, and that was his thing. And then Ed came along, and he saw something special about him. Here, I feel like the M.O. is off for Jerry. Jerry is doing everybody, and he's choosing to pick on neighbors when he ought to be getting bozos on the strip that are drunk. Except he doesn't kill them. He bites Ed, and Ed goes back home and then leaves early, you know, to hide out for the day. Yeah. His parents don't even know he's gone or anything, so he's creating this army. It's not like he's actually murdering. Do we understand what the army is going to accomplish? No. I don't. That's a big problem with vampire films in general is beyond their need to feed, the overall everybody's becoming a vampire is always a weak point. Yes. I think we're going to encounter that with Blade in a few weeks, too. Okay. I'm glad you brought up Blade. In that movie, they have vampires are able to get killed by silver like vampires. Here, they use silver bullets and things, and it doesn't affect him. He says werewolves or something like that, and he pulls a bullet out or something. I found that curious because I never heard of it before when I watched Blade about silver actually affecting vampires. They use it in True Blood. I can't remember how far back it goes. Okay. Silver bullets are certainly werewolves, yes. but I've seen silver used against vampires a good number of times. Just okay. not here. And it apparently crosses. It kind of pissed me off that the cross burst into flames when Jerry touched it, but yet it didn't bother him. They kind of drop a line about, do you have faith? But if I hadn't seen the first one, I'd be very confused by the crucifix scene. Yeah, they're trying to recreate the cleverness, the self-awareness that Fright Night had about being essentially a remake of Dracula. It was an ironic 80s Dracula remake where they aware that they're following this old storyline. Here, they're not so much remaking Dracula as they are just redoing the old movie. And sometimes when they go back to do the old movie stuff, it's just not working. The crucifix scene in the original, so powerful, because you think Peter Vincent brandishing that is going to have an impact in the way Chris Rannon just crushes it. Your heart sinks. Here, it's just an effect. He has to do it because that's what happens in a Fright Night movie. We've seen it before, and he's got to hit his marks. But it dramatically didn't make any sense. And there are a couple moments like that where I feel like they're just doing the old movie because they know they have to. The cross, when he grabs it and he bursts into flames, contradicts what he's saying. He says, you have to have faith for that to work or some variation of that. But when he grabs it, he bursts into flames. That means it does work. Yeah, like I said, they're just doing it because they know that was a memorable moment from the original and we have to redo all the memorable moments. The memorable moment from the first one is when Peter Vincent finds his faith and it starts to work, which they never do here, thus it never pays off. Yes, it is a problem of the writing that sometimes they're just doing it to doing it, and they want to be clever. I don't like the comedy in this movie. I feel like a lot of the jokes, including the Stretch Armstrong masturbation joke you guys seem to dig, were not funny. It was not on even on the level of Scream, where the cleverness and self-awareness was having a laugh as they were being killed. Here, I felt most of the jokes were very bad. My thinking on the jokes were that they were funny, but they didn't apply to the movie. They could have been in anything. Was Buffy written this way? No. They had a lot of pop culture references and things like that, but when you have, like, the fucking eBay joke, it's a good example of what you're talking about, you know? I liked that one because it actually pertained to what was going on, but a lot of the stuff, like, a lot of the body kind of super bad humor in here, a lot of the sex jokes, while funny, didn't fit the movie we were watching. When David Tennant's going in the hole down to Jerry's basement, he's like, I'm going down like a cheap date after a drink. You know, it's like, well, that's a funny line. I don't know why it's in this movie. (laughs) 
Yeah, it steps out of the movie too much. It becomes like a epic movie, scary movie kind of joke, as opposed to something someone might actually say to lighten a scary mood. Not that they have to go for realism, but it felt too self-aware. It felt too clever. It felt too knowing. When David Tennant tells his assistant, go fuck yourself, and she says, I will, somebody has to, the entire audience laughed, all three of us, but (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't mean it's a smart joke for this movie. Well, I think the eBay joke is funny in the moment too, Arnie, but I do see what you're saying at certain points, the jokes didn't fit. It was trying too hard. I mean, I found the original Peter Vincent funny just in the fact that he wasn't trying to tell us a joke, he was just doing what he thought he should, and it was so over the top, it was comical. And here, I definitely felt like David Tennant was playing to us, the audience in the movie theater. I still liked what he did with it. I still enjoyed watching him. But yeah, it felt like he was breaking the fourth wall quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And we get to this final attack. And, you know, it's fine. It's action-y. Amy has now been turned into a vampire. We have the day says Machina that the stake will turn everybody back, which explains, Stuart, your problem from the first one. Why can't Ed change back? Well, we didn't have the magical stake. Right. Which I hate, though. It's so stupid. (laughs) Oh, I agree. I agree. It doesn't work, but they're trying to explain things that didn't work in the original. They're just explaining it in a lazy way. (laughs) The one big thing in this movie I didn't like was this stake. As soon as they dropped it, I'm like, oh, crap. Basically, they know that they have to turn Amy into a vampire, but they're never willing to keep her that way. And I gotta say, this movie fooled me, because at one point, when he's thrown in the room with her, and we get the great wide fanged smile. I'm glad they brought that back, even though I don't think it works as well CGI as makeup. I thought it looked better, and I thought it looked also very reminiscent. She looked just like Amanda Beers in that moment. Yep. Yes, she did. No, she I agree. Did. They they clearly modeled it on that. I still think it looked better on Amanda Beers than it does as a CGI smile, but it's great. It's a great moment. When she gets staked, when he actually puts the stake in her, I thought maybe, just maybe, they were going to not bring her back. I knew she was going to be fine. I did. I thought, wow, they killed Amy, and I would have I would have gone with it. But here's the problem is, part of me was like, really? They did that? But the other part was, if they were going to do that, why would they have this magical stake? Yeah. No, I, it, you're right. It doesn't really make sense when you think it through. But I thought, yeah, the real battle here is not about Amy. It's really about these two guys. And, like, that's what's happening. If they get nothing else right about the climax, I'm really glad that they had it Charlie against Jerry. I mean, he puts on the flame retardant suit and lights himself on fire. All of that really worked for me. It had to be these two going at it and not Peter coming in with his stake and solving it. Of course, he didn't use the actual, what was it, the nail, right? Didn't he say a nail? There was a crucifixion nail, which I loved because it reminded me of part two when they bring back all this really obscure stuff like roses and Mm -hmm, shrouds. I was like, crucifixion nail, damn, that is obscure. But then they end up just using fire and stakes and sun. It's overkill. They set him on fire, then pull him into the sunlight, then stab him in the heart. But they used the idea, the flame retardant suit was the idea, so he can get close enough to use a crucifixion nail, but he ends up using the power-repelling stake. So that was kind of weird. But I did like the idea of it, and I liked the climax because of it. Before that happens, though, I love that Colin Farrell dances around the sunbeam. Anytime Colin Farrell's on screen, I'm enjoying this movie. And I'm enjoying the climax because he is still doing his thing, even when he gets obscured by the makeup and the CGI. We still see the performance. I love when he finally dies. He actually turns back to Colin Farrell for a second. He drips a single tear of blood. Love that part. Mm-hmm. And the 3D is good here, right? When yeah. he's, the face is leaning out and all of that. Looks pretty good. 
Yeah. Pretty good. None of the 3D really astounded me, but it was pretty good. It was never better than in the car chase when it was also never worse. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. You know, my favorite 3D moment is when he's turning Ed and Ed breaks into an abandoned house and says, you can't come in here. And the way they framed it, when he steps through the doorway, he's coming right out at you in 3D. And, and that's such an important moment in the movie. They're establishing a rule about when a vampire can and can't enter the world. I thought, hey, that's a smart way of using 3D. I feel like 3D here, I'm against 3D. All right, I'm against this whole trend. I'm certainly against the price. But if we have to do 3D, I feel like these filmmakers utilized it well enough that I didn't resent them for it. It didn't feel like a con. I didn't feel ripped off watching the 3D version of this movie. I think throughout, it looked good with the, a few blurry exceptions. I don't agree. But I do like a couple of scenes that have nothing to do with anything in the 3D aspect. The nightclub scene with the people, I really thought the people bounced out pretty well. And the opening shot with the street sign and the street lamps and things like that, I really got a nice depth of field there too. But at the end shot with Jerry's face and the whole thing there, I liked the 3D there very much. But overall, I did not think this movie had anything to do with a 3D experience. I didn't need the 3D experience at all. And I think I, even though a couple of moments were nice, I would have been just as happy to watch this particular movie in 2D. I honestly wish that on my second viewing, I could have seen the 2D showing. They're not showing it here in 2D, except <clears throat> once per day. So if you want to see this, unless you like pick that 2 o'clock showing in the afternoon, you are seeing it in 3D. But I think that so much of this movie was dark, so much of this movie was blurry, that while I did like some of the 3D effects, like the ash and such, I really wonder if I would have preferred the movie could I actually see some of it. <laughs> so, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Fright Night? Stuart. I'm going to come in on a recommend side here, and I'm happy that it went this way. I didn't have a lot of optimism. I didn't like a lot of what I saw in the trailer. There are problems, and I would say that if you were a purist, if you hate the idea of remaking this movie, it's not going to sell you on it. There's no reason <laughs> that this movie should exist other than we're doing everything vampire right now. That said, it's been done by good people who have found interesting takes on the material and had fun doing it. And consequently, for all of its myriad of problems, I would say it is a better redo than Fright Night 2 was. So... As someone that was a fan of the original and wanted to see it continue, I'll take what I can get. Fright Night 2011 works well enough to give a mild recommend. Arnie. I walked out of that movie, and I turned to my wife and my friend, and I said, Well, that wasn't very good, was it? And they both looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, Did we see the same movie? And... I kept talking about how there were so many things that the first film did so much better. And both of them were like, nah, the original was hokey and we don't like it, but we like this remake. And I sat there and I'm like, what did they see that I didn't? And this actually made me go back to see this movie a second time. Because the first time, I watched it only through the glasses of a Fright Night fan. And I think the first movie is far superior. And perhaps it's nostalgia. To me, I think it had better characters, better character development, better pacing. Here, seeing it a second time and trying to put away all thoughts of the original and just look at this for what it is. You know, the film ends with a song, and I'm going to quote it. The film has 99 problems, but being fun ain't one. I like this movie. It's a fun movie. It's flawed. It's got a lot of problems with it, but I'll give it a weak recommend. It's not bad. It's entertaining. It's a diversion, but a lot of problems, mostly with the script and the pacing and the character. Yeah, a lot of problems. 
There's no aftertaste. I won't go back to this 26 years from now to relive the experience like we did with the original Fright Night. But if you're undiscerning, and the more undiscerning you can be about it not living up to your childhood favorite, I don't see how you could not get some fun out of it. I agree. And honestly, I would think what tips the scale for me in terms of favor is David Tennant and Colin Farrell's performances. I halfway agree with you. (laughs) They make it fun. Without those two, I think this movie's problems would be far more fatal because there's a lot of stupidity and a lot of shortcuts in this film. And I think that there's some poor workmanship behind it, but their characters, some of their ad-libs, they're fun to watch on screen. So weak recommend. I'm going to give it a more solid recommend than you two. I had a very good time with this movie and I thought the characters were good. I see all the problems, but for me, it worked more because I didn't have the baggage, I think, that you guys brought into it. And I was able to take it what it was given. I know the original enough because I recently watched it to see the similarities. But at the same time, I understand that they are really taking a similar story and making a new movie out of it. And that's the kind of remakes I kind of prefer instead of a straight remake. So this one really did a lot of good things for me. But yes, it's flawed, but I had a really good time. Sure, it could have been tighter, could have been better, but it's a recommend for me. And go check it out. Three recommends, not bad. Not bad for a remake. I bet you people that don't like 80s stuff are going to like this much more. And sadly, they're just not going to get an opportunity to see it. This movie is going to remain niche because apparently it's flopping at the box office. Yeah. Right. They wanted to claim that vampires are scary and people are still like, nope, I'm waiting for Breaking Dawn. (laughs) I want True Blood. (laughs) I don't want your version of vampires. So they're just going against the grain and losing the argument. But I'd certainly rather watch a sequel to this than anything that's going on right now with Twilight or True Blood or any of that Vampire Diaries. Well, I hope you don't feel that way about the next retrospective because, you know, how many more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween? Let's keep up the horror. Let's do some more vampires, but we got to keep the Marvel train moving, too. So let's do Blade. Oh, okay. Wesley Snipes as a black Buffy? <laughs> I like Wesley Snipes sometimes, but I haven't seen one of these. This, I will be totally cold to this. We'll see. UI and Jacob will be doing that, and then... Also, in just a couple weeks to keep the horror going, we're going to give all the details closer to the time, but Brock Stewart and I will be doing our fall donation drive series with The Exorcist. Yes. I am looking forward to this. There are four Exorcist movies plus one. There was, of course, the original (laughs) classic, the Linda Blair freaky sequel, the George C. Scott third one, and then two versions of the prequel that we'll be doing all five as a donation podcast, much like we did Jaws. Beyond that, we'll also uh, have an extra donation series for The Thing. There's a new version of the classic outer space shape-shifting monster movie. That's coming as well. I saw the trailer for it before Fright Night. Is it in three? 3D, the new thing? No. Okay, so no cool snowflakes for you. No, no snow, <laughs> snowflakes. But I'll, I'll be happy to keep my four bucks. <laughs> we got Daredevil, we got Electra, Hannibal Lecter's on the way. We got a lot of stuff. Yep, there's nothing more horrifying than Daredevil and Electra. <laughs> Yes. So, a lot of good stuff coming. And if you want to hear stuff we've done already, you can go to our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com, and you can also find a link there to our forums where you can discuss those movies, and this one, this review, now that you listen to it, let us know what you think of Fright Night. You can talk about it in our forums, or go to our Facebook page and discuss it with other listeners like yourself. So that concludes the Fright Night retrospective, guys. Yeah, I gotta gotta go. I have some sluts to go (laughs) fuck. You're so cool, Arnie. <laughs> See ya soon. You're out of time. 
Thank you for listening to the now playing Fright Night retrospective series. If only there'd been a few more of you, perhaps my ratings would have been higher. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another installment in the Fright Night series, leading up to a week of release review of the Fright Night remake. I thought I'd let the vampires rest for a little while. Right, Charlie. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other film series, such as Friday the 13th, Scream, The Lost Boys, Final Destination, Halloween, and many more. We also have individual movie reviews for films like Avatar, The Human Centipede, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I expect we have a lot of the same interests, you know, in horror movies and the occult. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. Now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. You know, like an orgy of the damned. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. That might also explain your fascination with low-grade melodramas. I am so proud of you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I have a $500 savings bond. I'll take it. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Come on, dude. (laughs) It's party time. The Now Playing Fright Night retrospective series is edited by Arnie. You might amuse yourself some other way. Bowling, perhaps. Bowling? Now Playing is not affiliated with DreamWorks or Columbia Pictures, and no infringement is intended. I mean, you're going to need all the help you can get, right? Somebody like Peter Vincent, for instance? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. There. Satisfied? Totally. And you're finally convinced I'm not a vampire, either. Right? Yes. Well, I'm glad that's so. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. We're all through for today. You could say that again, partner. See ya. Soon. Imogen Poots? Imogen <laughs> Imogen Poots? <laughs> Directed by Craig Gillespie. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. This is Arnie, and there will be no fighting. There will be only podcasting. No fighting? Fighting. There will be no fighting. There will be only podcasting. Did you guys not watch this fucking movie we're about to review? For Christ's sake! It's a- I didn't watch it twice. Ergo, I don't quote you're talking about. I didn't. I didn't hear the T. I thought you said finding. I'm like, okay, I'll uh, pay my bills on time then. I, I have no idea what you're quoting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna pop your cherry. Come on, David Tennant. These were very memorable lines in Friday oh, Night. Well, oh, then that explains. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. So today we are talking about the remake of Fright Night, the summer release of this 
remake, this cult favorite that gets a remake of all the remakes we've done and now playing. You want to start that over because you sound like me in the first one where I'm like, I'm so excited to be talking about Fright Night. <laughs> Let's talk about Fight Night because I like Fight Night Fright and Fight Night is very frightening for Fight Night. Night. You were like that with Remake. <laughs> it's the Remake. <laughs> you kind of were, actually. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. So we're discussing the remake of Fright Night. Of all the remakes we've done here on Now Playing, <laughs> I'm going to say the word remake a thousand times more to make these two laugh, remaking the entire show. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is... Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! <laughs> I can't stand it! It was nice to go to see a movie for Now Playing when my wife actually wants to go. <laughs> or me! I can relate to her! <laughs> did, she, did she go to Green Lantern? No. <laughs> no, we need to go see movies together. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Now, recently I had a friend come over and say he'd really want to see this movie called I Am Number Four. And he hadn't seen it. And so I'm oh, like... a friend came over and made you see it. <laughs> truthfully, truthfully. This isn't Marjorie? This is not Marjorie. This, uh, is, this, is, this is the third person that we went to Fright Night with, actually. Okay. And he was saying how... Is he, he your was. friend anymore? After you keep talking <laughs> the movies he takes you to? <laughs> yeah, he went to Green Lantern with me as well. So. Oh, that's right. You like that movie. All right, moving on. But, oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Played by Imogen... <laughs> Poots. Just don't say it. <laughs> Imogen Gay Poots. That is her full name. Wow. Really? Her parents hated her. They wow. Did. She's lucky she's hot. <laughs> she's lucky that people would procreate with Poots. <laughs> Some people like it in the Poots. <laughs> you nice. don't usually get a baby out of it, but yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm just surprised because that's kind of, I mean, that's a deal breaker. Wow, you're really hot. What's your, what's your sign, baby? What's your name? Oh, never mind. I'm out. Carlos Estevez thinks she should change her name. Everyone <laughs> thinks she should change her name. Who's Carlos Estevez? <laughs> oh, wait. It's, that's uh, Charlie Sheen. Yes. Ah, got it. Got it. Nice. All right. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, Carlos, didn't know I this. think she should change her name. Everyone thinks. Who the hell cares what Carlos thinks? Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. He was also very good in Alpha Dog, a movie I can't recommend highly enough. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Well, I recommend it. So... <laughs> You go now. <laughs> yes, I'll hold on a second, guys. I'll be back in two hours. <laughs> I'll be back in an hour and thirty-six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. What's that little shit from High School Musical? Charlie Zac St. Efron. Cloud. Zach Efron. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Poots pulls up in the car. I'm going to start calling her Amy now. Yeah, I agree. Stop with <laughs> the Poots. Yeah. I feel like you're... For some she reason, it feels, feels like an insult, even though it's yeah. her surname. But Yes. yes. <laughs> it's like if we had somebody whose name was Balzac. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. This movie would be nowhere without him. He is incredible in the film. I agree. I need to use the bathroom, and I will be right back. <laughs> <laughs> what a segue. Oh, 
you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. That's what Poots is asking for. That's what... <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. I think that's good. I like the way that they're staking their claim to the way that the original movie did it. Staking no their pun claim. <laughs> no pun intended, but I no didn't necessarily want you to call it out. <laughs> Some jokes aren't good when you actually go, see, you did that. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Recommend to all 3D filmmakers, find a reason to have snow or ash or embers <laughs> in all of your movies because it looks really cool in 3D. Backdraft 3D, you're there. No, I well, <laughs> uh, I have to think about that. But um, yes. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Yeah, they are trying to recreate. Uh, you you might appreciate this, Arnie, because I'm about to knock Marty Knoxon. But they're trying to recreate. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. There's no proof it's going to work. It's just a legend. You know, it's kind of like a He-Man episode. I thought that was a myth. And it turned out to be real. Same kind of thing here. The steak actually works you got from eBay that helps vampire... It, it, come on. If that kind of thing actually exists, don't you think a vampire would keep that someplace where no one else could get it? You can't outbid the famous magician. But you can break into his house, kill him, and steal it. You're a vampire. You can't break into his house unless you're invited. Oh, that's a good you... point. But that's a good point, Arnie. I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. You're right, you're right, you're right. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Because here... Here they have... Hold on one second. Unfortunately, my phone is ringing. Um, yes, we know. <laughs> yes. Hold on a second, please. I can't believe I'm getting a phone call. <sighs> <laughs> Who would want to talk to you? No, my wife's, my wife's not... My, usually when this happens during recordings, my wife picks the phone up quickly because she's oh, aware, but she's are. not home. Oh. Oh, fucking A. <laughs> it's your mother. Give me a call. <laughs> Why do you never call me anymore? <laughs> Mom, I told you I'm recording tonight, okay? <laughs> get, get out of my um, utility center. Um, so what was I talking about? Because it was a good point. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it.